Good morning again. Uh, welcome to Trinity Heights. And uh, this is uh, an appropriate message for this morning because it's just a small gathering this morning. And this was a letter written to a small church on the fringes of the Roman Empire. And, and you'll see why these, these, these words are sort of directed precisely at a, at a, a community to give them a particular type of vision, um, even though there's just a, a few of them uh, gathering in Colossae. So our reading this morning is from Colossians, chapter 1. And it says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing amongst you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who has also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we have heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. So we spent the first couple of weeks looking at the way that Paul begins his letter and the way Paul ends his letter, his dear Colossians bit and the your sincerely bit. And, and the point of looking at the way Paul brackets his letter was essentially that we would help us understand everything he writes in between those, those brackets, right? Um, and, and so the, the, Paul, Paul essentially starts out not simply saying, dear Colossians and your sincerely, because if that's all he said, as we said, we wouldn't really be able to decipher very much. But but he begins instead by saying grace and peace to you from God our Father. And we spent the first week unpacking that word peace and what that might mean. And then at the end, he signs off with this intriguing phrase, remember my chains, grace be with you. And through an exploration in week one of Paul's Jewish heritage, and on the one hand, and then in week two, an exploration of the Roman context in which he's writing on the other, we've come to appreciate that these very deceptively simple sort of phrases and, and greetings are actually rich with theological meaning, and we've come to appreciate the sort of more political dimension of Paul's thinking. And there's much more of that to come. So my hope is what we'll do throughout this series is we'll just keep going back and forth between those two Poles, we need to keep on saying, okay, Paul's a Jewish thinker, he's a Jewish writer, uh, but at the same time, we also keep needing to say, yeah, but he's writing in the Roman context, in the context of the greatest empire the world had ever seen. But my hope in going back and forth between these two ancient worlds, ancient Judaism and ancient Rome, is that we'll be able to hear Paul more clearly, we'll connect with Paul, we'll understand him more readily, and when that happens, I think we'll be invited into a new way of seeing and a new way of evaluating our world and our own lives. If you were to ask someone back then, do you think Rome is a force for good or evil in the world? Do, do you think that Rome is a positive or negative force in the course of human history? Do you identify as Roman? Do you identify as a, as a Roman citizen? Everyone back then would have understood the question and they would have had an opinion. 
especially the Colossians, the people Paul is writing to, because they lived in Colossae, which is actually a Roman colony. And these colonies were, were started by Julius Caesar and Caesar Augustus for the purpose of, of making a new home for veterans. They, they had all of these veterans coming home, covered in blood, drenched in blood from war, and they didn't want these people returning and just filling up Rome with nothing much to do, right? So they gave them these sort of conquered territories, and the whole purpose of those conquered their, their presence, these colonists' presence, was to Romanize the world around them. Uh, and so if you, if you want to think of their city as like a, think of it this way, it was like a giant billboard, a giant billboard. It was a huge advertising campaign promoting the Roman way of life. They're saying, come and experience life like this. This is how humanity will flourish and be fruitful. Fruitfulness was a phrase that they used a lot. Come and be fruitful. Come and be part of the Roman Empire. Submit yourselves to the emperor and life is just so much better this way. This is, this is the, the advertisement. And... And so as a result of this constant advertising, many people assimilated, they got Roman citizenship for themselves. Um, and so to be one of these colonies was really special. You know, you were, it was a status thing. And, and so you, you were essentially a piece of Rome away from Rome. You were advancing the, 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 an extension of the great city itself. And so to start off with, I just bring this up to make this point that Paul's readers, every one of them would have been very conscious of Rome and hyper aware of the status of their city, just hyper aware of the role that their special role that their city played in the context of the empire. So that if you ask someone, what do you think about Rome? Everyone had an opinion. Could ask another question, what do you think about the church? Do you think that the church is a force for good and evil in the world? Do you think it is a negative or positive force in the course of world history? Do you think you know, that you would identify with the church or identify as a Christian? That's a question we might ask here in New York and in our neighborhood or on campus at Columbia. And I'm pretty sure everyone would have an opinion. You may not like their opinion. You may not ask for their opinion. They might just give it to you, but, but they'll have an opinion, right? This is just the way it is. Of course, if we were to ask that same question back then in the Roman world, most people it would have drawn a blank. They wouldn't know what you were talking about or why you're even, what, what, are you, what are you even saying? For the simple reason that there had been no church history and there wasn't a single church building on the face of planet Earth. Tell us something we don't know, Stephen. You're stating the obvious. Yes, I'm, I'm stating the obvious, but the reason why I'm stating the obvious is because I think it's really easy for us to either be perceived as or to think of ourselves, start to, to think of ourselves as a sort of global, part of a global and historical permanent fixture. Perhaps people perceive us or our self-perception is as organized religion is a dirty phrase. Ooh, organized religion, nothing worse than that, is there, apparently. Uh, a, a political body, maybe. Instigators in the culture wars. An archaic institution, perhaps. Uh, I've, I've often been asked, especially in England, why would you want to be part of such an archaic institution? So it's easy to think of ourselves, our own self-perception, or, or even to be perceived from the outside as existing in these various forms. And then it's in that context, it's easy to miss what Paul is doing here and why he's doing it. So 
here's what Paul says. He says, we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. And he says, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. All God's people bearing fruit, the whole world. All God's people bearing fruit, the whole, whole world. These three phrases are, are there functioning in Paul's writing uh, for, for the same, they're serving the same purpose. He's got the same aim. And, and so here's what Paul's doing. Paul is essentially appropriating, cool, cultural appropriation. That, that, I may, that may even be worse than organized religion, I don't know. So, so he, he's appropriating some, some Roman thinking here and he's applying it to the church. He's saying, you, you know that consciousness, you're super conscious of Rome, and you, you know that you're, you're hyper aware, you're hyper aware of uh, your role as a city that you play, the special status you have, uh, advertising the Roman way of life, inviting everyone, uh, a piece of Rome away from Rome, inviting everyone to come and, and, and uh, gain Roman citizenship for themselves. Well, you know that, that you're super aware of that. He, he's saying, I want you to have that kind of awareness that you have for your city. Have that about the role that the church is playing and what your lives are, are doing here. So, so he's, he's connecting them. Remember, it's this small, fledgling community, and he's connecting them to this worldwide project and he's saying you're actually involved in something on this scale right um, and, and he's, he wants them uh, to remember yeah, you're super conscious of Rome will be super conscious of heaven and understand you are a colony of heaven on earth that your lives have the potential to be a colony of heaven on earth together inviting the world to citizenship in God's kingdom and that may not come naturally to someone of a sect on the fringes of society, um, may not be inclined to perceive themselves that way. Uh, but, but that's the vision he's trying to give them. And so he says, all God's people and the whole world. And, and, and perhaps it's, it's, it's sort of obvious how those function, but this bearing fruit, um, okay, in, in verse six, he says, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. Uh, and then in verse 10, he talks about so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. And, and actually, uh, this is functioning in the same way as these other phrases of the whole world and all God's people, um, because this idea of fruitfulness and bearing fruit in Jewish thinking is actually closely associated with global thinking. Now that this, this word fruitfulness comes up throughout the whole of scripture, we, we haven't got time to do a massive survey of that, you'll be glad to know. But what we'll do is again, we'll just look at the brackets. Let's just look at the way the Bible is bracketed. So let's look at Genesis and Revelation and it shows up in the first pages and the last pages of the Bible. It shows up in the Garden of Eden and it shows up in the New Jerusalem coming down out of, out of heaven. Um, so, in each context, when it talks about this fruitfulness, what you'll notice is it always has to do with the flourishing of the entirety of humanity. It always has to do with the flourishing of the entirety of, of the whole world. So it says that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female and created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. So it's this idea of fruitfulness that blesses the earth, that covers the earth, that fills the earth. Uh, and then in Revelation, we jump to the end of the Bible, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and on the land down the middle of the great street of the city. So we're no longer in a garden, we're in this city. 
And it says, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So there's this picture of fruitfulness and bearing fruit. And again, it's for the whole world. It's for the nations. It is very, very easy to lose this sort of outward focus and become very quickly entirely focused on ourselves as a community. Um, perhaps because we're a small community or perhaps because we're also used to sort of thinking and the, the church is perceived as that sort of historical global fixture, an institution, a political body, one side of an ugly culture. Have you, any of you experienced this, by the way? Sort of seen, have you seen the church as, as one side of an ugly culture war? Yeah, you're, you're, so a few of you are nodding. And, and so you're like, yeah, yeah, I, I, that's really ugly. I don't want, I don't want any part of that. Or, or have you ever experienced it as a sort of a political body throwing its weight around? Maybe you've perceived it from the outside, you've experienced it on the inside, and, and you're like, ah, uh, that's not for me. Or perhaps you've experienced a church acting institution, in an institutionalized way where it's all about self-perpetuation, it's all about maintaining the status quo. And, and you may have, have experienced that as well, and, and you feel, I think I just need to step out for a minute to get some fresh air. It's very easy for the church to slide into some version of any one of those modes of existence. But before we, before we planted the church, Julia and I read a ton of books, any book we could get our hand on on church planting. And we talked to a bunch of people who had done church planting in New York City and other places. We, we connected with City to City, which is Redeemer's Church Planting Network. We did, I was part of a program with them. We had numerous meetings with them. They're, they're the experts. And, and one of the things that came up in all of those conversations and in every book we read was this. This is a common theme. The, quick, the, the church very quickly, become, how quickly it becomes institutionalized. And, and how quickly we become focused on ourselves and our own needs and our own wants and our own desires. And so we need something in our lives, some mechanism in the life of our community that will help us to, to, to lift our eyes away from ourselves to, to this, to this vision. Um, I'm thankful for the, the various people in our congregation who over the years have, have been involved in serving in different facets of the life of our city. And, and I think that this is one of the ways we are reminded. Uh, one of the ways that many people at Trinity Heights over the years have, have been involved is, is in an organization called Lilly. And some of you know Lilly serves the elderly in New York City, actually in our neighborhood, in Morningside Heights and also in, in Harlem. And, and um, imagine growing up here, or maybe you haven't grown up here like Reese, we can't all be Reese, right? But it's definitely seven years because I've been here nearly seven years. So just, just uh, so, it, so you're a New Yorker after seven years, and uh, but imagine you live here for a long time, and you work here, and you fall in love here, and you grow old here, but then somewhere along the way, you suddenly find yourself on the margins, on the outside of the city, looking in. You were part of its vibrant life, but now you're on the outside looking in and you start to feel marginalized, and you start to feel alone, and you start to feel isolated. Um, one of the elderly people involved with this organization, Lily, uh, was, actually said that's, that's when they knew they'd got old. They said, it's when people no longer notice me. It's like they just look straight through me. It's like I wasn't there anymore. And they said, that's when I knew I'd, I'd, I'd sort of crossed over the, into this, this, this thing, this other state, status. And so what Lily does is they try to connect these people, elderly people, back with the city. And they say, look, here, and they do that simply by connecting them with, with people like us. And in some ways, it's a very simple uh, 
ministry or service because you're, just, you're really just getting to know people and making relationships. On the other hand, it can be really difficult. Uh, our friend Paul Cornelius, he was in his late 80s. We've known him for six years. And uh, he, he was a New Yorker. He'd been here, uh, yeah, 80 of those 87 years that he had. He, he died last year. And uh, he's left this big chasm in, in Julius in my life. And we're, we, just, we've, we feel that loss. And, and we, we really miss him because he was no longer just a weekly visit. He'd just become a friend. And, and he was in our lives, and, and we'd, we'd go and do stuff together. We, we, he was an opera buff, so we'd, we'd go to the opera with him. Or, or He worked at Saks Fifth for many years, and so we went to Saks Fifth, and, and, uh, and he hadn't been there in a couple of decades, so we took him up to the floor where he'd worked on the men's department, and immediately a couple of his old colleagues, like 20, 25 years later, they, they saw him and immediately knew who he was, and, and that just made his day. But, uh, but he's gone now. But, but I was thankful to be able to be part of, of connect, reconnecting him in those final years with, with life in the city. If you're interested in serving with Lily, please uh, don't hesitate to come and talk to me afterwards. I'd love to connect you with that organization. But that's just one way. That's just one way that we can serve. There's so many multiple ways, and I hope that we'll hear from different people in our congregation as time goes on uh, in the coming weeks, actually, uh, of ways that we can serve in the city. But, but the point is, is this. We, we need something, some mechanism in our lives. And it may seem mechanical at first before it becomes a natural loving relationship. But we need some mechanism in our lives that will lift our eyes uh, away from ourselves and remind us that we're not here for ourselves, but for the flourishing of the city and the flourishing of humanity. So, so this week, uh, I'd encourage you to, to just think about what is that particular practice going to be for you? This thing where we serve and love, and, and there's no recompense except for that sort of reward that comes from loving and serving someone else. What is that practice going to be? Maybe weekly, maybe monthly. But what is that moment in your week or month going to be where you love and serve in that way? That thing that lifts our eyes away from ourselves. Well, I've, I've talked about the, the, this, this Garden of Eden and, and this New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. But you and I, we don't exist there, do we? We, we live in between Eden and, and, and the New Jerusalem. And um, as, as you know, John Lennon is famous for saying that uh, if, if America is the new Roman Empire, then you know, New York is the new Rome. So what's expected of us? Well, the prophet Jeremiah says to Israel, who are neither in Eden at the time, nor in their homeland, the Promised Land, so they live between those two places, the Garden of Eden and the Promised Land. And Jeremiah says this to them. Build houses and settle down. They're in Babylon. They're in exile. They're in captivity. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is actually very deeply ironic because the whole reason why they're in exile is because they weren't producing the good fruit that was to be a blessing to the nations, a blessing to the whole world. And God comes to his vineyard that is Israel and he's looking for the good fruit and he doesn't find the good fruit that, with which he can bless the nations. And so God carries them to the nations and he says, now, 
That would be a blessing. See if you can bear fruit right here in exile between the Garden of Eden and the New Jerusalem. If, um, if you've been to one of our baptisms before, you'll know that it's, well, I think it's one of the highlights of, of the year for me. Uh, we cram a bunch of people into Tim and Ruth Krieber's apartment and we eat together and then we baptize people in their bathtub. And every time we do this, I, I, I always want to explain why do we do it this way? Why are we doing it in a bathtub? We could dunk them in the Hudson, we could do it in the swimming pool or in the baptistry here at the church. They'd lend it to us. They're very generous, Riverside. Uh, so we could do that. But we don't. We do it in someone's bathtub. And the reason why, and I always explain this, the reason why we do it like this is because this is actually how the vast majority or or, or a massive portion of the church has to do it because they are the persecuted church. They're not a political body. They're not a powerful institution. They're not influencers. They don't hold the levers of power. They're not trying to win a culture war. They're not. They're small fledgling communities like us and they're persecuted and so they have to do it in secret in someone's home in someone's apartment in someone's bathtub that's that's the way most christians have to do this and so whenever we do that we remind ourselves each time this is normal this is normal for the church to operate in the margins of society this is normal we don't have to get hold of the levers of power so the last baptism we did before the pandemic hit uh, was our friend Ali's baptism. And uh, she, she said to me just a couple of weeks ago, she was, she was laughing about the fact, she said, it's ironic, isn't it, that I would show up in New York City of all places, and that is where I go from skepticism to Jesus, finding Christian faith. That, and, and I'd show up in New York, and that's where I um, become a Jesus follower. Why would it happen to me there? Well, why did it happen to her here? Uh, At a baptism, she shared her story. And that story had nothing to do with institutions and political bodies and and, and, uh, winning the the culture wars or anything like that. Instead, she talked about how she was invited into a small fledgling community called Trinity Heights on the fringes of this vast city And she talked about her friends and she talked about their lives together and the way they treated each other and the way they treated her. She talked about multiple, multiple meaningful, open, honest conversations where nothing was off limits over coffees and dinners and drinks. And she talked about love and she talked about friendship. And she talked about grace and she talked about peace. Peace, not the serenity now peace, but what like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the, the peace, the, the harmony, the far-reaching harmony that can characterize and permeate every single one of our relationships. And that is why that happened to her in New York City. So, so how much power do we need? What position or societal status does the church need? What control over the major institutions do we need? How much of an upper hand do we have to have in the culture wars? How large do we have to be? Which side of the culture wars is prudent and strategic for the church to take in order for the church to be fruitful in the environment of this particular empire? And the answer, of course, is none. Everything Paul talks about here is good works, love, and faithfulness. And through that, he says... The gospel 
It may be a small community in your small corner of the world, in this very important city, in the very important empire. But he says, through that, the gospel is bearing fruit throughout the whole world. You're part of this worldwide project. You can live a life worthy of the Lord. Please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. Well, I'd like to come and uh, close this message by sharing in communion. Um, we're going to share communion with this. Hopefully you've all got one of those. If you don't, they're in the basket on the back chair there as you, as you come in. So please grab one if you would like to take part in communion. This is not my favorite way of doing communion. Uh, this is like the airplane communion, I guess, because it's like the economy class food, right? If, if you, I don't know, some of you might be business class. I don't know what it's like in that world. But in economy class, this is how we, we eat on the plane. Um, and, and so it's not my favorite way, but this at least allows us to, to, to do communion within the permits that we, that we have. Um, so look, when Jesus calls us to, when he calls us to take bread and eat it and, and he says look do this in remembrance of me and to drink wine and he says do this in remembrance of me he's not simply saying eat bread and drink wine then go home again but of course it's deeply symbolic of the fact that Jesus gives his own flesh and his own blood he gives himself for, he says I'm giving myself for you and I'm giving myself for the world and the invitation to come and take bread and wine is, is another one of those reminders to, to give ourselves for each other and to give ourselves for the world and so, look, you don't have to have all your theological ducks all lined up in a row. You don't have to, you know, if this means at least that to you, if you hear the invitation of Jesus who gives himself for us and you hear his invitation, now give yourself for each other, give yourself for the world, then, then share in this with us. So on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We drink with thankful hearts.